You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community, about antidepressants for migraines. Know the risks before you start. How are you doing, Mary? I'm doing good. How's it going with you? Good, good. So I wanted to talk about antidepressant prescriptions for migraines. Yes. I have not even thought about this before. So yeah, let's talk about it. Recently in the free Facebook group, Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar ND, we've gotten several questions for people about antidepressant therapy for migraines. So I thought this would be a great topic to talk about this week. Okay, so meaning that people are being treated by antidepressants, not being triggered by, or maybe both. Yes, antidepressant medication is a treatment for migraines, exactly. I feel like those are just kind of a catch-all treatment in some cases. Oh, we don't know what else to do. Here's some antidepressants. We could end the podcast right now, Mary. You just, (laughs) you pretty much summed it up, right? We did just say that we were going to try and keep it short, but. (laughs) (laughs) You are correct. Your intuition is spot on, okay? So the antidepressant prescription is whipped out when the neurologist doesn't know what to do with you anymore. Mm. So is this like one of the last resorts? Or do people often get it right off the bat? No, this is going to be something that is prescribed when people start failing the migraine drugs. The typical progression uh, for chronic migraine sufferers, when they first start getting migraines, they're going to start with over-the-counter medication, Advil, Aleve, Tylenol, Excedrin. And for most people, those are going to have some suppressive effect. They're going to provide some relief at first. But then as the body fights that suppressive effect of the over-the-counter meds, then people will be sort of driven to go into their doctor for a prescription. The first prescriptions that are going to be given are going to be the tryptin medication, the things like Imitrex, Maxalt, those tryptin medications. Those are going to be the first line therapy from prescriptions. And then again, for most people at the beginning, those are going to work pretty well at suppressing the migraine symptoms. And then again, like everything else, when we suppress symptoms, the body fights that suppression and then the medication stops working. Then when the tryptins are no longer working for people, they go back into the doctor and then the doctor starts talking about daily preventative medication. With tryptin medications or over-the-counter analgesics like Excedrin or Aleve, people are taking those as needed, right? Mm -hmm. Daily preventative medication, that's something that you're going to take daily in the hopes of, quote-unquote, preventing the migraine, what the medication is actually doing is suppressing the symptoms to an even greater degree, sort of a daily suppression in the hopes that they can sort of keep the lid on the symptoms Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So then when people first start on the daily preventative route, one of the first things that will be prescribed is propranolol, which is a blood pressure medication, which we've talked about in other podcasts. And so that will be some of the first daily preventatives that are given. Topamax would be another common daily preventative medication that's going to be given uh, first. And then as these start to fail, this is when the neurologist, as you like to say, Mary, starts throwing spaghetti at the wall. (laughs) My Mm -hmm. favorite, (laughs) yeah. So then they start, okay, what else can we do here? What more can we add on here to try to suppress these symptoms? And so this is where an antidepressant prescription could be brought out. So let me ask you one quick question. I think it's quick. When you say fail, that means not only stops getting migraines, it also is kicking up unbearable side effects. Could be one or the other, could be both. The medication is considered to, again, I think the wording is very instructive here, okay? So the neurologist doesn't say the medication failed you. 
the neurologist says you failed the medication, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I agree. Like the medication is infallible and the human is not somehow. Exactly, right? So your body failed to respond to the medication. Hmm. Failing a treatment could mean that it just plain old doesn't work or the side effects are so brutal that it can't be justified. Or what is the most common situation is that the medication will start to work at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. then not work over time. It becomes less and less effective at suppressing the symptoms that the body is generating over time. And we've done podcasts on this. I have a free training on why this happens. And so when that phenomenon, which is a phenomenon that the body is doing to protect itself, the body is doing what it is supposed to do when it is fighting the suppressive effect of these medications. But in the conventional medical world, when your body does what it is supposed to do and the medication stops working as well, that means you failed the medication. Right. And once again, we walk away feeling like we're broken and something's wrong with me and yes, what did I do wrong? And- exactly. Yeah. Why is my body not responding? Right. Well, your mm-hmm. body is not supposed to respond, quote unquote, favorably when we go in and try to alter the biochemistry and the physiology and suppress the symptoms that it's generating. Mm-hmm. When people have reached this point where they failed, quote unquote, failed the first line preventative medication, then that mm-hmm. antidepressant script mm-hmm. is going to be broken out. So here's your happy thought of the day, people, that if you are failing your prescriptions, it's because your body is too smart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> too much of what it's supposed to be doing. So there you go. Spin it. <laughs> yes. You know, I've had many clients over the years because people who come to me by and large are in a situation where their neurologist has said, you know, there's nothing more I can do for you. And so I have had so many clients over the years when we start working together, they express this, right? Like there's something wrong with me. No medication works. I failed all of the medication. You know, this is a very, very common thing that I hear from clients. And once they do what they need to do to restore their health and they start feeling better, then the light bulb kind of goes on. Thank goodness my body didn't respond to these medications. Thank goodness that drove me to seek out the true answers to this problem here, which is to restore our health. When we're in a state of health, the body doesn't generate migraines. I've experienced this in my own life, realizing that my migraines were actually a gift. And I know when I say that, I make a lot of people mad, but my migraines were actually a gift because they were so extraordinarily painful and debilitating that I would have, you know, I I was ready to make that problem go away. And I was going to do whatever it took to make that problem go away. And so I've had many clients over the years have that same light bulb moment of, oh, wow, if I had not, quote unquote, failed these meds, I'd be living in limbo. Maybe I wouldn't have as outright debilitating migraines as I had, but I'd have all the side effects I'd still have all my other symptoms. I'd still be foggy. I'd still have all this weight that I could never take off. They realize they'd still be living sort of in this limbo life. So yes, the fact that your body is not cooperating with the medication is an absolute indication that your body's natural intelligence is fighting for its life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's just nice for a minute to be like, oh, Maybe my body isn't broken. Maybe I'm not defective. Maybe it's the system. Sometimes it's just nice to have that perspective to look back at. Yeah. So when the antidepressant script is broken out, the go-to antidepressant is in the class of tricyclic antidepressants. There are two antidepressants in that category that are used, and that is amitriptyline, which is probably the most common that I see being prescribed. And then the runner-up would be nortriptyline. Mm -hmm. Those are two drugs in that tricyclic 
class. And in this class of antidepressants, the serotonin levels in the brain are manipulated. And because they have observed that serotonin is a factor within the brain that dilates or contracts the blood vessels in the brain, it makes sense that they're using this type of antidepressant for migraines most commonly. However, people can be prescribed other antidepressants for migraines. I see that too. So people might be prescribed Prozac, Wellbutrin, Cymbalta. People will be prescribed other antidepressants as well, but definitely the amitriptyline and the nortriptyline, those are sort of standard of care antidepressants that are prescribed. And I see people on them quite a bit. So basically what you're saying is that the neurotransmitters in the brain have been linked to migraines. Is that like there's not enough of them floating around? So antidepressants are prescribed to try and boost those chemicals, like happy chemicals in the brain? Now you're taking us down a real rabbit hole, Mary. (laughs) I am really good at that, aren't I? (laughs) You are, and I really appreciate that. There's a (laughs) tremendous problem within American medical treatment of depression. For decades in America, there has been a hypothesis that the problem with depression is that there's low serotonin levels in the brain. And so the antidepressants that are used are drugs that manipulate different aspects of serotonin metabolism, whether it's the creation of serotonin, the recycling of serotonin within the brain, or the serotonin metabolism within the brain. Now, interestingly enough, in France, they have a totally different hypothesis as to what causes depression, and they think that high serotonin causes depression in France, and so the drugs that they've been using over the years lowers serotonin levels in the brain. Wait a minute. I'm like, hold up. Uh Literally the complete polar opposite approach. Total opposite. Mm -hmm. And just recently, just a few months ago of us recording this, this entire serotonin hypothesis in the States, there was big breaking news that it was now proving, the hypothesis was proving to be false. So the amount that we know about neurotransmitter biochemistry is considerable. I have no doubt no doubt at all that what we don't know is orders of magnitude greater than what we know. But mm-hmm. what we do is we think that we're so smart and we think we have everything figured out and we're going to go in and we're going to manipulate things that are part of a very complex system mm-hmm. that we don't have the full picture of, but we just feel free to go in and manipulate things. You know, I actually had a thought the other day where it was kind of like, okay, wait a minute. We probably talk about a half a dozen neurotransmitters, maybe total. And we think that those handful of neurotransmitters are responsible for everything in our bodies and brains. That seems really unrealistic to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there's got to be a lot more going on than we can ever, ever imagine. Exactly. And the neurotransmitters that are found in the brain are also found in the digestive tract. Mm -hmm. they're not just in the brain. The neurotransmitters are all over the body. So they've started calling for 15, 20 years now, they've called the digestive tract the second brain because Mm -hmm. they just relatively recently, 15, 20 years ago is not a long time, but they've relatively recently discovered that these neurotransmitters that were once thought to be in the brain only, they're called neurotransmitters, right? Neuron, right? So even the way that they were named, it was assumed that they were only in the brain. Well, boy, our digestive tract uses neurotransmitters too for signaling and so Mm -hmm. on. Where else are they being used in the body? Mm -hmm. So we think we can go in, right? We think we're so smart and so clever that we can go in and manipulate this extraordinarily complex system that we humans are, and that that's going to solve the problems. Obviously, it doesn't solve the problems because people are getting sicker and sicker. Right. And to me, it just is almost laughable that we're only, like I said, working with a half a dozen chemicals and thinking it will fix everything. Exactly. It's just not realistic in my head. (laughs) 
let's look at the side effects of mm-hmm. antidepressants. So headache mm-hmm. is a side effect. Mm-hmm. Nausea is a side effect. Mm-hmm. Another common migraine symptom. Fatigue or feeling kind of sedated, a little, you know, woozy. Well, there's another migraine symptom. Mm-hmm. Sensitivity to sunlight or heat. Well, boy, mm-hmm. there's another. Mm-hmm. Anxiety. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a lot of people have anxiety when they have chronic migraines. And then we have other systemic side effects like weight gain, insomnia. Mm-hmm. Not to be <laughs> inappropriate or anything, but it can ruin your sex life. Like, for sure. Yeah. Low libido. On, on, mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of them, right? Like we're already have a, you know, we already have a headache, right? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> you know, all of these side effects, many of which overlap with migraine symptoms or something like insomnia, you know, for most chronic migraine sufferers, great way to get a migraine is to not sleep well at night. What are we really doing here? Again, if you're taking an antidepressant, I'm not saying this to criticize you. I'm not saying this to shame you, but I'm saying it as a wake-up call. I know how desperate you are. I know you feel like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I know you don't want to take any of this medication, but you don't know what else to do. But this is the time, right, where we have to stand up and say, enough is enough. My intuition is telling me that this is the wrong course of action. Mm -hmm. And I think there's another really problematic part of antidepressant prescribing. I cannot tell you again how many times over the years that I've been in practice where Mm -hmm. women are being prescribed antidepressants because they are having a normal emotional response to things going on in their life. I cannot tell you how many patients and clients I've had over the years where they went in to their annual checkup and had a family member that recently passed away. And so, you know, you're in the doctor's office. Usually this is with maybe their gynecologist or something like that. And, you know, most women like their gynecologist and appreciate their annual checkup from a screening standpoint and so on, or their primary care doctor. And they're grieving And the doctor says, oh, is any, you know, how are you overall? And, you know, they might tear up. They might share how how they're grieving. And boom, they're getting a prescription for an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. Grief is a normal response when we lose someone. Right. It's not a medical condition. Mm. I've seen this happen with women going through just a stressful period of their life. Mm -hmm. And they share that with the doctor. Oh, yeah, you don't seem like yourself. This being said by a doctor that sees them once a year. Right. You don't seem like yourself here. Let me give you something to help. I see antidepressants being prescribed when people are irritable. Do you think it's disproportionate for women as far as like almost a, oh, we still have hysteria? Like, oh, just throw something at the woman because she's hysterical, like that whole thing. And with men, it's less so. I think that there are some lingering aspects of that. I'm 50 now. Definitely when I was younger and would go into the doctor, I would experience some stereotyping. I do think that this is getting less and less common over the years. You know, now that I have some decades, (laughs) some decades (laughs) long, I think that this is becoming less and less common as far as the stereotyping of women. Mm -hmm. However, women, number one, in general, women experience their emotions in a more conscious way than men do. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm generalizing now, but in general, when men have emotions, they may not be that consciously aware of the mm-hmm. emotions that they're experiencing. In order to sort of even bring it up to the doctor, there has to be a level of consciousness around mm-hmm. having the emotion in the first place. And women, the, again, when you look at personality traits, you know, uh, the big five personality traits, there are some correlations, right? There are some patterns. Women tend to have different big five personality traits than men do. Obviously, this mm-hmm. is not all 100% of the time, but we women, right? We have a tendency towards different personality traits towards men. Mm -hmm. Well, in general, too, we have taught men it's not okay to express emotions. And so it's probably just more likely that a woman would be vulnerable to their doctor in the first place, I would Mm -hmm. would think. Yeah. 
Yeah, and definitely my experience now as a physician, again, in general, I like to say, you know, men have to have one arm ripped off before they go to the doctor. You know, men, (laughs) things have to be pretty bad before they're going to go into a doctor. Whereas we women, we're more likely to go into the doctor. Men probably have less interactions with doctors. You know, we Mm -hmm. women, we have our annual screening exams and so on that men, technically men shouldn't be going in for a prostate screening yearly until they're 40. But how many men actually do a yearly screening exam even after 40? Mm -hmm. Again, they're not that inclined to go into the doctor unless there's something very obviously wrong. Whereas we Mm -hmm. women, we, you know, are, are much more conscientious about screening appointments and so on. That's because we know that like the entire world rests on our shoulders. And for uh-huh. real, if we're not here, <laughs> like if we don't end up being here for a health reason, then our entire family is going to fall apart. So right, just, right. honestly, I think that's what motivates me to go to screenings. It's like, well, my kids need me. I have to, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, men somehow put that out of their mind a little bit easier. (laughs) Maybe it's like, oh, maybe it's a vacation to think about not being here. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. Interestingly, though, I was thinking about the spaghetti on the wall situation. And honestly, looking at history and my own experiences, I feel like prescribing antidepressants is probably the most spaghetti on the wall situation of them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's really no way to even know which bot. I know like you can get DNA testing to find out which antidepressant is effective for your body or metabolizes mm-hmm. properly for you. Mm-hmm. But unless you're doing that DNA testing, which I would say 99% of the time we don't, mm-hmm. you really are just guessing which one will work. Nothing is more spaghetti on the wall than antidepressant prescriptions, I think. It is a very imprecise medication, Mm -hmm. for sure. On a personal note, I I took Prozac literally for 20 years. And I've always just had a little bit of depression that I fought. And 20 years later, I did the DNA testing. And guess what? Which one was the number one will not work for you, do not take on my list. Of course it was Prozac. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm like, I've been taking that for so long and having no purpose behind it. It's kind of discouraging when you like think about it as a migraine treatment too, because again, guessing and Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily even the right treatment. Well, yeah. I mean, in my book, even if you do the genetic testing, which is in its infancy, there is some genetic testing now that will check different biochemical pathways against different drugs. Mm -hmm. But even so, what Mm -hmm. road are we even going down with that? The biggest lie that has been told to us is that we have anxiety or depression or these mental and emotional symptoms because there's some sort of innate chemical deficiency in the brain. And this is what I see over and over and over again that people are being told, oh, well, you know, if you have depression, it's because I have heard it compared to diabetes, right? Well, you know, diabetic, they need insulin. And, you know, if you're depressed, you need more serotonin. And it's like, well, uh, boy, is that really the case? Mm -hmm. Sure isn't. Again, we have mental and emotional symptoms for a reason. Well, and I guess it boils down to as well, like, if you're using it to treat migraines specifically, you've got a whole other bag of worms that you're dealing with. And is that even going to be helpful? Right. Well, and then my other question is, we see a lot, like people talk about, oh, my doctor says it's all in my head. And I kind of feel like giving someone a prescription for an antidepressant almost validates that this isn't a real thing. It's just in your head feeling. Very good point. Yeah. It's kind of dismissive in a way. It, it is. And I think, you know, you see this with other health conditions, other chronic pain conditions, say fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. Antidepressants is one of the go-to treatments for that. Yeah. There is sort of this attitude of, you know, if you have chronic physical pain, yeah, it's kind of all in your head. You're just, you know, oh, well, we don't really know what to do with you. Again, when people have chronic migraines, 
why wouldn't they have a low mood? Why wouldn't they feel like they don't have anything to live for? Mm-hmm. It would be kind of strange if somebody had chronic migraines and they were like, oh yeah, my mood's great. I, you know, I wake up every day, just the, you know, feeling like I have endless possibilities here, right? That'd be kind of strange. I know I've seen you respond to people about that in the Facebook group, but if you didn't feel anxiety about a possible attack at any minute, that would be strange. Exactly. If you didn't feel a little bit gloomy because your migraines were taking over your life, that would be strange. Exactly. But, you know, women go into the neurologist and say, I'm having anxiety and I dread getting out of bed in the morning. Oh, okay. Well, let's give you an antidepressant. First of all, that isn't even a symptom. Technically, that would be a normal response on the mental and emotional side for the symptoms that people are experiencing. Again, it's just like grief. If I have a family member pass away, grief would be a normal response, not a symptom. And chronic pain, that's a hard thing to live with. I don't care how strong you are. That is a burden that is very challenging. Exactly. So it's it's normal that people are going to develop a low mood or anxiety. That would be a normal response. One more question about the antidepressant things. I am just going to throw a guess out there that it's also another drug that your body has to metabolize and is making it harder for your body in a roundabout way because you're adding to the work that your body is doing. Absolutely. And this is the case with any medication. So when we take these meds, we are actually depleting ourselves within these three principles that are required to restore our health. Absolutely. Medications deplete nutrients. And so the first principle to restoring our health and maintaining our health is getting the nutrients that our cells need to the cells so that they have the nutrients that they need to do their work. And Mm -hmm. so when we take any medication, all medication depletes nutrients. So now we've got a blocker in that first principle. We've got even more of a blocker, right? We're taking the medication because we already have a blocker of some sort within that first principle. And now we're exacerbating that. And then, yeah, in the the second principle of restoring and maintaining our health is clearing metabolic waste material and toxins. And so all medication has to be detoxified by the kidneys, by the liver, and removed from the body. And so the liver and the kidney have to do that work. They Mm -hmm. have to have the nutrients they need to run those detoxification pathways. And there has to be adequate cellular voltage or vitality at the organ level in order for the cells to do their work. And so we're depleting ourselves also within that third principle. The third principle is restoring our resiliency and vitality. So any medication that we take is going to generate sort of a hit within those three principles. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. The other problem with a lot of medication, antidepressants, is definitely one of them. The withdrawal that many people experience coming off of antidepressants can be significant. So antidepressants are some of the most difficult medications for people to get off of. And I see this over and over again in my practice, helping people work with their prescribing doctor to wean off of these medications that they no longer need because they're feeling better. Antidepressants in general for most people are going to be much harder to wean off of than propranolol or blood pressure medication, Topamax, the CGRP antagonist, the Amavig, the Amgality. It's this antidepressant class of drugs that can be very challenging for people to wean off. Even worse than any of those. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a long, long list. Yeah, It is a long list. So, you know, many of my clients are taking multiple daily preventatives. When they start to feel better, They want to start to wean off because the daily preventatives, you're going to have to wean off of those medications. And so when they get to the point where they want to start to work with their prescribing doctor and wean off these medications, I will provide education and support to my clients to do that. And based on my experience and what I know about their case and how their body responds to things, I will recommend, you know, I think you should talk with your doctor first about, you know, the propranolol and then the Topamax. And then the Cymbalta. Usually, I will recommend that people wean off last on the antidepressants because they are so difficult to wean off of. And we have to really build up the body before many people are able to wean off of them. 
And what happens too, most conventional doctors, they have people wean off these medications way too quickly. Somebody's been on Prozac for 20 years and they say, well, wean off over a two-week period of time. I mean, forget it. (laughs) I mean, you say it like that, it sounds silly. (laughs) Well, but this is very common. They'll do this with, you know, things like Topamax. You know, people have been on something, amitriptyline. Oh, wean off in, you know, two to four weeks, something you've been on for five years. You have to appreciate when we take these medications that are altering our brain chemistry, okay? Now, all drugs are altering our biochemistry, but the brain chemistry in particular, you have to be very careful when you discontinue that manipulation. Mm-hmm. Your brain adapts to the amitriptyline, to the Topamax, to the Cymbalta. And so when we take these medications that are altering the brain biochemistry, the body adapts to that, it fights the suppression, and then it sort of adapts to the suppression. And so if we are taking something that is manipulating our serotonin, our brain says, well, you know, eh, she's taking something that manipulates the recycling of the serotonin. I don't need to make so much serotonin. So I'm going to stop making it because this medication is on board manipulating things. So eh, if she's going to manipulate it with a drug, I'm not going to make so much. Well, then if we suddenly discontinue that, the brain is totally caught off guard. Whoa, wait a minute here. I've got to ramp up production again. Now I need the enzymes. I need the nutrients. I need all of the machinery to Mm. whip up what was being suppressed. This is the case with any long-term suppressive medication but particularly when this is happening in the brain, it can take a long time for people's biochemical machinery within the brain to restart itself. Hmm. What I see over and over again is medical doctors are taking people off these meds way too quickly. And so what hmm. happens when we come off a med and then we have withdrawal effects? We go, oh, I guess I really needed this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not feeling good now. I guess I really need it. Yeah, with antidepressants, that can be super scary because I know a lot of them have warnings about suicidal thoughts when you wean off of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you're messing with life and death at that point. Exactly, exactly. And also people try to wean off these medications before they've done anything to restore their health. So Mm -hmm. if you are in the same or even worse state of health, than you were when you started the medication. If you try to come off the medication, you're not going to feel better. Why would you? So again, if you are taking these preventative medications, you've had difficulty coming off of them in the past. Let's get your health restored first Mm. and then start weaning you off of these medications and you're set up for success, not failure. Sounds like, hey, if I get my body healthy and strong, then I'll be able to cope with the withdrawal better. We don't want to even have a withdrawal. Mm, Okay. My goal with my clients is they don't experience a withdrawal. That's my goal for all of my clients. Because if we can restore the health, people are already feeling better. They're not going to need to suppress the symptoms as much as they were because the body isn't generating the symptoms as much. So right off the bat, you can take off some of that medication dose. You can take off some of that suppressive effect right off the bat. And then when you wean down slowly and you're giving your body what it needs to be in a state of health, your body is going to adapt, right? Oh, okay. There's a little bit less amitriptyline. All right, let me get this brain chemistry fired up a little bit more. Oh, she took it down another notch. Okay, let me get this machinery fired up a little bit more. Your body is going to adapt, but we want to set it up for success, not failure. Makes sense. So the two pieces of that are to restore your health first and then wean down at a pace that your body can adapt to. And that can be very different person to person. This is, like I say, I cannot change people's prescriptions. I don't change people's prescriptions. You need to work with your prescribing doctor to wean off these medications and change the prescription. But I can certainly educate people. I can certainly advise people as to what to suggest to their doctor. And I do that based on years of experience of working with clients and understanding, right? By the time we get to the point where we're going to start weaning off medication, I understand how their body reacts to things. Some people are very, very sensitive. Those of us Mm -hmm. that are prone to chronic migraines, we are 
in general, more sensitive than the average person. If you have somebody, yeah, they're not real sensitive to things. Yeah, you could probably come, you know, wean off of these more quickly. But if you have a very sensitive person, they're sensitive to any change. And so any change, even in the medication, they're going to have a reaction to. And so I have some clients where I recommend that they talk to their doctor about going down very, very slowly, milligram by milligram, as slow as we can go, because that's how sensitive they are. So rather than just one size fits all, oh yeah, okay, just wean down over four weeks. It's like, how does your body respond to things? What is your state of health? What is going to set you up for success to come off of these medications? It's very important. Is that typically like you're saying it's not great to do it in two to four weeks, but like, is that typically a several month thing? Like, what do you see most frequently? With amitriptyline and nortriptyline, if we look at these two tricyclic antidepressants, usually people get off these easier than like the Cymbalta, the Prozac, the Wellbutrin, okay? Those are usually harder for people to come off of. Cymbalta is notorious for being sort of the worst antidepressant for people to come off of. Amitriptyline and nortriptyline, usually I find it's easier for people to wean off of those. So that's a positive for migraine sufferers because those are the two most common that are first prescribed. People have to really be irritating their neurologist. (laughs) They really have to have driven their neurologist to their wits end if they're going to get the Wellbutrin or the Prozac or the Cymbalta for their migraines. But it can happen. It can absolutely happen. I've seen it. Interesting. Other things like propranolol, Topamax, some of more of the first-line preventatives, those are easier for people to come off when they're in a better state of health. That makes sense. The biochemistry thing really, really interests me. I think withdrawal is an interesting situation too. Like, I don't know. Like, it can be as simple as feeling irritable all the time. Mm -hmm. Just feeling off or foggy or, you know, Mm -hmm. so many different things. Yeah, people can have relatively mild withdrawal symptoms that, you know, if you push through a little bit, maybe push through for a week, you know, you kind of come around on the other side. But it's very common for people to have debilitating withdrawal symptoms that are intolerable and drive them to go back on the medicine. I like how you mentioned that when you go through the withdrawals, your automatic response to that is, oh, I needed them. That's because I needed them. Yeah, that's what the mind says. When you're dealing with the withdrawal symptoms instead of the migraine, now you're dealing with the withdrawal and you're like, oh, well, that's because I needed the drug. Mm -hmm. And that's false. Nobody has an amitriptyline deficiency, but this is what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah. It just makes so much sense when you say it that way. Nobody has an aspirin deficiency or an Advil deficiency or an antidepressant deficiency. Like, just makes so much sense. (laughs) But it feels that way to us. And so that's the conclusion that the mind comes Mm -hmm. to. Another very common thing that my clients have told me over the years is when they try to come off a medicine and then they go back into the doctor and say, well, I was having withdrawal effects. You know, I couldn't come off. The doctor looks at them like, well, what did you expect? Rather than, oh, let's have you, you know, wean down more slowly or, you know, God forbid, let's restore your health before we get you off this thing, right? So that you're set up for success. But it's funny, the reaction of the medical doctors when people report difficulty coming off the meds, it's just sort of like, uh, what do you expect? You know, it's kind of like your fault type of response. It's interesting. I didn't mention that you were going to have side effects if you withdrew when I prescribed this. But I'm so shocked that you are are confused by getting withdrawal symptoms. Like, oh, okay, now you're really breaking <laughs> oh, my heart here. Yeah, because <laughs> this is something I've heard many times too. The doctor never told me that I would become addicted to the medicine because that's basically what's happening. Mm-hmm. The body has become adapted to the biochemical effects of the medicine. And so if it doesn't get the medicine, it gets totally thrown off kilter. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah, this is when I really get fired up is when people say, you know, my doctor never told me that if I start Cymbalta, it's going to be difficult to get off of. 
my doctor never told me that if I start the Prilosec and take it for more than two weeks, I'm at a higher risk for osteoporosis. People are not told what the side effects or long-term consequences are of these medicines. And that just, oh, that gets me out of bed in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it lights a fire under you, but I guess I was just kind of thinking, doesn't that fall under the do no harm oath? Like we're supposed to have an informed consent. Mm -hmm. When we are, you go through research, when you are on medication, when you sign papers at the hospital for surgery, you are supposed to be given all the information you need to make a good decision. And, you know, that's like informed consent. But if you don't tell me what the side effects are, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that like, you know, just as an example, one of my kids had to be on ADHD medication and I guess had to is a very poor choice of words. But (laughs) not knowing any of this stuff before, we chose to medicate him, right? The first medication he took, he started having facial tics. Hmm. And it was about three weeks. And I'm a pretty on top of things mom in that way. But Mm -hmm. it still took me about three weeks to go, wait a minute. He didn't have facial tics until he was on the medication. Mm-hmm. But not once did the doctor say, pay attention to him not eating, pay attention to him having facial tics, pay attention to fill in the blank. So it was just lucky that I was aware enough. Medication number two made him wash his hands until he bled. Mm-hmm. Again, same thing. I was glad that I was aware enough that that was a possibility. But it still took me two, three weeks to realize that's the medication speaking, not him. And once we pulled him off, it was like a light switch yeah. was off. You know, like, oh, he's no longer, you know, he still has like kind of a germaphobe issue, but he doesn't wash his hands till he bled until we exacerbated it by medication. Yeah. So it's just really frustrating that by not informing people, we're not allowing them to make informed decisions. Yeah. Because of the internet, you were, I'm assuming, right? You you probably were able to put those puzzle pieces together because of the internet. Well, for me, it's, I mean, more because of my education. Like I kind of had, you know, enough experience and knowledge to go, wait a minute. It took me a second to realize that that's the facial tick was even happening because he just looked like a bunny rabbit where he would like scrunch up his nose and make a weird face. But it was like, almost compulsive. And it was just very, a normal person probably wouldn't have noticed it. Yeah. But after about three weeks, I was like, he never did that before. Yeah. We took him off the medication and it was gone. I didn't even Google it. It just occurred to me based on what my experience was in education. Other situations, I've Googled things like, wait a minute, this is happening to my body after being on a medication. Is that connected? We all mm-hmm. know diarrhea is caused <laughs> by prescriptions. <laughs> no, but it's like everything can be connected back. Thank goodness you made that connection because what happens to many people is that, oh, now my son has another condition. Mm-hmm. Oh, now he's got OCD. Oh, okay. Well, here we go with another med. And so, you know, kind of the joke is, you know, oh, I took it, I started on a medication and then I got side effects. And so then I needed a medication for the side effects. But what's even more sort of insidious is in this case, if people don't even realize it's a side effect, they think they've got a new condition. Right. And now we're talking about a child. Okay. Now you're really going to get me (laughs) riled up again. Because again, for a child, Now we're going to have a situation where the child, as they are starting to form their self-esteem, their identity relative to, you know, the world and other people, now we're putting it on a child that they have another health condition that's actually a side effect. This can have a devastating, life-changing effect on a child, just Mm -hmm. from a mental and emotional perspective of feeling defective as a child. Well, and I'll be honest with you, like, I feel far more educated from talking to you through these podcasts where those things are a lot more on my radar. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Is this something that I actually need to medicate? Or, you know, is there Mm -hmm. something else going on? The jury is still out in some ways in my own personal life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
So I feel like it's okay for me to tell people that it's okay if you feel that way as well. This is a process of learning and I'm mm-hmm. like adjusting as I go, you know? Mm-hmm. It is because look, I, I had to go through the same process. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a very typical family. I was raised in the American culture. We have been told from the very beginning that if we have symptoms, if we have a health condition, we have a diagnosis. It's for no other reason than there's something defective about us, defective mm-hmm. in our genetics, or we were unlucky, or this or that. Mm-hmm. I had to go through that whole process that you are going through, Mary. Mm-hmm. I totally relate. Right. And I'm telling you, it's almost like creepy because Leslie's voice is in my head <laughs> so much now. <laughs> Where if I'm like taking an Advil, for, I woke up with a headache this morning and I popped three Advil and I was like, oh, Leslie is going to be mad at me. No, just kidding. No, I'm not going to be mad at you. <laughs> no. It is, no. It's different because now I have a different perspective and awareness of what we're putting into our bodies. And yeah. is this actually going to bring me into a state of health? Which I love the way you word that. I'm not just healthy. I'm in a state of health or not. But there's a lot more awareness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have no judgment on you, Mary. I have no judgment on anyone. I will be totally honest here. Most people in the alternative medicine space, okay, mm-hmm. in the quote unquote industry that I'm in, mm-hmm. sometimes I say things on this podcast that upset people in the industry that I'm in, but I'm going to get real, real here. Okay. (laughs) Most natural practitioners are suppressing their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it's very hard not to suppress our symptoms. Not too long ago, we did not have the technology to suppress all of these symptoms that we can suppress today. And people just kind of had to suffer it out. Mm Mm-hmm. But now, because we have been able to uncover the biochemistry and figure out how to manipulate the biochemistry, we have all of this technology now in the form of these suppressive medications that can shut down the biochemistry and the physiology that's causing us the suffering. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to not say no to that. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I got very sick and I lost an organ, a body part, because I suppressed some flu symptoms with Mm. Tylenol, okay? Not even anything prescription. Mm -hmm. Having to go through that, having to get very sick as a result of that, having to have a surgery where I lost my thyroid, having my thyroid destroyed as a result of me taking that Tylenol and subsequently deciding to have it removed because it was so destroyed, and then having to completely rebuild my health nearly from the ground up after going through all of this nightmare, I made a commitment 10 years ago to not suppress any symptoms unless I was in, God forbid, some sort of life-threatening, you know, my airways closing off or something like that. God forbid I'm in some sort of life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. But most people that I know in the natural medicine industry have not made that level of commitment. And I wouldn't have made that level of commitment had I not been severely injured and reaped the repercussions, sort of the one in a million repercussions of that. Mm -hmm. But making that commitment, I can't tell you what I have learned about myself and my own body over the past 10 years because I've experienced all of the symptoms <laughs> that my yes. body has generated. <laughs> so it's like, not only does Leslie talk the talk, she is walking that walk. <laughs> oh yeah, I felt it. I felt it, right? I'm like, most of the time I'm walking with shame, but no, <laughs> no, no, there's no, no shame involved. Yeah. But again, this is where I had to experience because I was already a naturopathic doctor. I had already gone through naturopathic medical school. I had already knew the consequences of suppressing symptoms. I already knew all that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to have the flu. Right. I didn't, ha- I, had, I didn't have time for the flu. Right. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take a Tylenol. Which again, in the, in the scheme of suppressive medications, it's kind of a lightweight. You can take a lightweight suppressive medication and you can be that one in a million person. Mm, you know, statistics mean nothing until it happens to you. 
And I've lived through that. We talked about that just the other day in my psychology class that people just have a bias that all of the bad things are going to happen to other people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but never us. (laughs) So even me knowing, even me having all the knowledge that I had, I didn't have time for the pain of the Mm -hmm. flu. And I suffered the consequences. And I have to tell you, as painful as it was, I'm, gosh, can I say that I'm grateful that it happened to me? I think I can. I, think you I, I didn't think Just, I would go go this deep on this podcast, Mary, when we started talking about this. But I know. <laughs> right, that experience, right? Sometimes we have to walk through the fire in mm-hmm. order to see what's on the other side, right? And right. it truly has been an amazing 10-year journey of mm-hmm. coming back from my health being utterly devastated mm-hmm. and having to work through my own self-rage at quote unquote doing it to myself. Okay. That's been quite a journey too. And like I say, allowing my body to generate the symptoms that it needs to generate in response to the environment that my body is in at that time. Mm -hmm. And like I say, accepting that, not suppressing it, not running from it, but accepting it. It's been quite a transformational 10 years doing it. Well, I just want to say two things in closing. One, some of us aren't quite to the point where we're to that level of commitment yet. <laughs> and I think that's okay that we're it is okay. Right it is totally okay if people are not to that level of commitment. Yeah, it's hard to say no to an Advil when you're like, I have to go to work today, regardless mm-hmm. of how I feel. So it's very difficult to not want to suppress symptoms. So like, you know, Leslie's saying we aren't coming from a place of shaming or like I jokingly say she's going to be mad at me. It's, it's not that. It's just, it's kind of like having that little angel on my shoulder now that Leslie's in the corner <laughs> telling me, hey, this isn't really going to help you in the long run. But the second thing is I really do appreciate how you say that you're grateful for things because I think a blessing that comes with the 40s, <laughs> which I never expected to be like, the 40s are awesome. Like this is a good spot to be in. I think the blessing comes with that perspective of, you know, sometimes you do go through the fire and sometimes you come out and you're like, I wouldn't do that twice if I could avoid it, but I appreciate what I learned and I appreciate the person I became because of it. I didn't have that perspective in my 20s or 30s by any means. I don't know. I just always appreciate when you express that gratitude. Well, thank you, Mary. Yeah. I think we've come full circle today, huh? I know. Here we are again. (laughs) And we'll see you next time, right? Awesome. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. And thank you for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode, subscribe to this podcast, share with someone in your life who you think would benefit from this information. And if you want to stay connected with us, you can join my free Facebook group, Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, where over 10,000 women are rediscovering a migraine-free life. You can go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND in the Facebook search bar or to healingmigrainesnaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the group. <music>